Good morning. Uh, today's scripture is taken from Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of us. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in, in accordance with your faith. And if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We're continuing on in our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is our second to last sermon in this series, so we find that hard to believe that we've moved through this book that quickly, but um, I think it's been a good series so far, and so as it draws to an end, uh, hopefully uh, we continue to gain wisdom and insight from it. So this morning, I would like to talk to you about famous last words. This is the idea that as someone nears the ending of their life, their most profound teaching begins to come out. This is where we've gotten many famous quotes over the years uh, from people that, you know, maybe this wasn't exactly the, the very last thing that they said, but over the course of their life, um, something that they said close to the end. Leonard Nimoy, who famously played Spock in Star Trek, Again, my nerdiness coming out here. Uh, he said this in his final tweet. A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. And then he said his famous line, live long and prosper. Isaac Newton, who formulated the theory of universal gravity, said this. I don't know what I may seem to the world. But as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore, and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. That's quite a, a humble quote from Sir Isaac Newton. And so this morning, as Paul nears the end of the book of Thessalonians, he isn't nearing the end of his life, per se, not quite yet, but he is nearing the end of the book. And the way that he writes in these final two sermons, uh, it changes a bit. 
the way that he words his final instructions, it makes it seem like he is either running out of time or he's running out of room on the page <laughs> uh, because it seems like he's furiously scribbling and trying to jam-pack as much spiritual goodness as he can into his final words. And so, if the letter to the Thessalonians were a story, the past two weeks we kind of reached the climax of that story, and now we're kind of moving into the final action of the book. And so Paul is wrapping things up, and today's passage serves as almost a summary of what he has talked about over the course of the entire book. And so, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a look at today's passage. God, this morning we were grateful for this letter to the Thessalonians written by Paul. And God, we've received much wisdom and, and insight from you and from your word as we've journeyed through this book together. And we're not at the end quite yet, uh, but God, we know that you still have more for us here. So I pray that you would open our, our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us. And God, may we uh, not just hear it, but may we accept it. And God, may our lives change accordingly. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 5. We looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 last week. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 22 of that chapter. Today's passage is split up into two parts. Two is less than our usual three, so. <laughs> uh, and you can think of these as our two lessons to be gained from this sermon. Uh, the first section is the value of healthy relationships in verses 12 through 15. And the second, the value of healthy personal lives in verses 16 through 22. Let me read verses 12 through 15 for us this morning. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so in this first verse, Paul, he describes three aspects of uh, a group of people that he's talking about who are worthy of respect in a church. He says, those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. And Paul is talking about the elders of a church. The church in Thessalonica would have had some sort of leadership structure, likely elders. Uh, what others might call a ministry council, and for us here at California, we call an official board. And so really, there's two groups of people that Paul has in view in this section. Though Paul's instructions are mainly for the Thessalonian congregation, he also has some instructions for the leadership of the church as well. And so for leaders in the church, uh, one must first, he says, work among the people. Not just working for the people, but working 
with them. This means that for a leader in the church, one must be invested in the lives of the people that they are overseeing. This means knowing what their day-to-day life looks like and then finding ways to maybe minister alongside of them in what they are already doing. This is the idea that leaders must be humble, right? They don't just lord themselves over the people that they lead, but they serve amongst them. Next, he says, a leader must be called by God to serve. This is what he means by those who, as he says, are over you in the Lord. Ultimately, it is not people who elect their their leaders, though we do elect our leaders. But ultimately, it is God who puts those into leadership that he wants. Elders or leaders in a church should have some sense that God wants them to serve in the leadership position that they serve in. And because of that calling by God, God then gives the leader what they need in order to lead. And lastly, Paul says that those who admonish you, that leaders must admonish the people. And this is a word that uh, we don't use or are that familiar with. Admonish, usually when we read it, we think of encourage, right? encourage the people. But admonish is a little stronger than that, has more of a connotation of uh, serious instruction, sometimes firm correction. And so leaders in the church are the ones who keep people on track, right? They keep the church headed in the direction and the vision that God has laid out for them. And so Paul says that because leaders fulfill these roles, they are then worthy of respect. And as he says in verse 13, leaders are esteemed highly in love because of their work. Respect is an interesting translation of that word there. And if you're using a church Bible or a new international version, it might say acknowledge instead of respect. And really the word that Paul uses here simply means to see and to know. And so a congregation must see and know the work that their leaders are doing amongst them. This is a very specific set of instructions from Paul. And to use an analogy, I still remember the the moment in college when I realized all that my parents had done for me as a kid growing up for the first 20 or so years of my life. Something in me clicked. And I saw and I knew how my parents had invested in me, sacrificed for me, encouraged me as a kid. And it was in that moment, that realization, that I came to truly respect my parents, right? And so to draw the analogy back to what what Paul is speaking about, I want you to think for a moment, How have the leaders of this church, pastor present, how have they worked among you? How have they encouraged you, sacrificed time and effort for you, labored among you, right? Uh, Those things are the work that leaders of this church have done in the past. And so as a follow-up question, do you see it? Do you know it? And do you have 
a level of respect to them for it. And just as a note, our, we as a church are committed to transparency in this area, right? If you want to see and know the work that the leadership of this church are doing, we post the minutes from the board meetings out in the in the hallway. And you see, this is this is really the beautiful thing about a church: leaders serving the congregation, and the congregation appreciating how the leaders have serve them or are serving them, right? There's kind of a a push and a pull there. And this is what truly provides peace in a church, as Paul instructs at the end of verse 13. It's easy for conflict to arise in a church between the congregation and the leadership, and it's easy for rifts to form and finger-pointing to happen between the groups. But peace is found when the leaders serve faithfully as God has called them to. And the congregation sees and knows and ultimately trusts that they are doing so. And so after this first bit of instruction, mostly aimed at the leadership of the church, Paul begins to just rapid-fire instructions at the Thessalonians. And these are aimed more at the whole congregation, not just the leadership in mind. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul once again addresses the brothers, so this is the whole congregation. His first instruction is to admonish the idle. There's that word admonish again, to keep people on track, as I defined earlier. The church is not a place for uh, us to sit back and, and relax, to vacation, but the church is a place for all to do the work of ministry together. This has been a main theme as we've talked about throughout this book. And so we can gather from this command from Paul that being idle is being off track. And so who in the congregation haven't we seen in some time? Who is missing from church gatherings, fellowship opportunities, service opportunities, those kind of things? All of us must spur each other on to good works. If you don't have a place to serve or contribute in the church, I invite you to let the leadership of the church know. Let us know what you are passionate about, and hopefully we can get you plugged in in that area. So Paul's first instruction, admonish the idle. Second instruction, encourage the faint-hearted. The church is a place for the faint of heart to find encouragement. A place where a group of people can surround someone who is faint of heart and help them in their time of need. All of us in the church are assigned this job of encouraging one another who in our congregation might be faint-hearted right now, who might be facing some sort of discouragement in their life, and how can we as a church work together to bring them some encouragement? And Paul's third instruction, help the weak. The church is a place for the weak to find help where they can have a group of people provide them with the strength that they by themselves might not have. 
All of us in the church are assigned to this job of helping the weak. Who in our congregation is weak and might need some help from us? Who might not be speaking up but could use a hand? And it could be simple things, right? Getting around, taking care of their home, providing groceries for themselves or for others. In the church, we work together to help the weak. And Paul, he lists these instructions here because these are the groups of people that are often neglected in a church. We would much rather be with the busy than be with the idle. We would much rather be with the strong of heart than to be with the faint of heart. We would much rather be with the strong than be with the weak. And why is that? Why is that the case? Well, because it's easier to do that, right? It's easy to minister to those who are already doing well because it doesn't require much from us, right? And as Paul says in verse or at the end of verse 14, this takes patience. It takes patience to help those who are in need or help those who are faint of heart or help those who are idle because they move at a different pace of life. And sometimes uh, when we look at those who might need our help, we, we just want to fix them, right? We want to give them the quick fix to improve their life situation. But sometimes it isn't a quick fix that they need, but uh, the patient presence of someone who is walking alongside them through that circumstance. And so Paul says to be patient with them all. And finally, Paul lists a simple command in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It is easy in the life of a church to hold a grudge. This person has wronged me, and so the next opportunity, I'm going to get them back. And that kind of attitude should have no place in the church. The church of all places should be a place where the other cheek is turned, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You see, in the church, we always have the best interest of each other in mind. We should always be seeking to do good for one another. That should be our default state of being. Even to those who have wronged us at some point in the past. You see, the key to a healthy church, and what I think Paul is getting at with all of these instructions in this passage, is the key to a healthy church is healthy relationships. Good relationships between the leaders of the church and the congregation members. But also, more than that, relationships between congregation members and congregation members. 
pastors and congregation members, pastors and leaders, all of that. You see, relationships, to use another analogy, relationships are like gardens. Relationships must be tended to. They must be cared for. You have to pull the weeds out sometimes, pull the bad out before you can plant the good stuff, right? And so in order for us to have healthy relationships, we must also have healthy personal lives as well. And so that's what Paul talks about in our next section. Let me read verses 16 through 22 for us. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so Paul continues to rapid fire his instructions in this next section. Some of these instructions being two word verses of scripture. But these, these instructions have a different aim than the instructions that we just looked at in the first section. These instructions are aimed at the personal life of the follower of Jesus. These are practices, things that can draw us closer in our relationship with God. And Paul, interestingly, is speaking in absolutes here. He says, rejoice always. He says to pray without ceasing. He says to give thanks in all circumstances. And the question really is, does Paul really mean these things? Is it even possible to accomplish these things? How can someone pray without ceasing? Right? Don't they have to do other things throughout their day? And I would say that these things are more realistic than we might think. First, he says to rejoice always. This is a a constant state of gladness, a life filled with joy, a life where we are constantly returning to the satisfaction that we have through God and how he has blessed us. Next, he says to pray without ceasing. Prayer, simply being talking with God. And so this is a constant state of conversation between a person and their father. Not just asking for things, but simply involving God in everything that we are doing. And when there's a prayer need, we don't just pray once to get it out of the way. We we keep praying. We keep praying. And third, Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. This is a constant state of thankfulness for what God has given us. Even in the bad times, we know that God is working things together for our good. And he is using all circumstances to grow us. And so we can be thankful because we know that. 
And so for the Thessalonians who Paul is writing to, this, this would have been a big ask from Paul. For him to ask this of them because of the persecution that they faced, they would have said, how can we pray when it seems like our prayers go unanswered? How can we rejoice when it seems like things never go our way? How can we give thanks when everything is being taken from us? These are questions they might have asked, and maybe you have asked questions like these. So here's Paul's answer. Jesus Christ. He says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, God has given us his son Jesus, the Jesus who we just talked about for the last two weeks, the one who died on the cross for us, rose again and is coming back. That same Jesus God sent to us so that we could always rejoice, so that without ceasing we could pray, and that in all circumstances we could give thanks. We can rejoice always. Because we have received a blessing from God in Jesus that is eternal, a blessing that does not fade. You see, we can pray without ceasing because Jesus has opened up the door for us to communicate with the Father, not just in a temple, but anywhere, at any time. And we can give thanks in all circumstances because we know that even in the worst of circumstances, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was using that for our good. And so we know that God can use our worst circumstances for good as well. Paul speaks in absolutes here with these commands because he knows that the life that God has envisioned for us is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. They're not just hopeful dreams, but they can be a reality for the life of a follower of Jesus. Don't you want that life? Doesn't that sound like a great life to live. Can you imagine yourself living that life? And, and what would that look like for you to do that? See, so often we get stuck, right? We, we rejoice, but you know, only when things are going well for us. Or we pray, but you know, only when we really need something. Or we give thanks, but only when we received what it is that you know we really wanted. But because of Jesus, we rejoice even when things aren't going well. We pray, not only when we need things, but just because we want to talk with God. And we give thanks even when we haven't received that thing that you know we really wanted. And so a reason that we get stuck, as Paul points to in his next instruction in verse 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, as Paul is pointing to, the Holy Spirit is our helper. 
As Jesus said in John chapter 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of the things that Jesus has said to us. But quenching the Spirit means not listening to the Spirit. Not allowing him to remind us of what Jesus has done for us and said to us. And not allowing the Spirit to lead our lives accordingly. See, Jesus has has sent the Holy Spirit to help us. Help us so that we could rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. And Paul also says, in kind of a random anecdote, not to despise prophecies, but to test them. Some may have the gift of prophecy, and prophecy can be helpful. That is why Paul says not to despise prophecy. But we are to test prophecy. There are many who may come, as Paul talked about earlier in the book of Thessalonians, many who may come saying that they have a word from the Lord or some sort of revelation. But we are not to accept everything, but instead to test everything. So we test in two main ways. The first, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But the prophet, who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, If the word does not come to pass or come true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And the second way that we test is we test according to God's word. We hold prophecy against what God has already revealed to us through his word. And we make sure that prophecy is consistent with what God has already said and consistent with his character. And so as Paul wraps up and closes with his rapid-fire instructions here, he says in closing, Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Which really, that one phrase is a good summary of the entire book in and of itself. And so somehow, I, I don't know how he did it, Somehow, Paul manages to squeeze all of this instruction here into these short couple of verses. And so, because he wrote it all down, all of this is important. And so we must pay attention to it. But as we close this morning, I just want us to look back over this passage and see the person of Jesus at work here. The things that Paul lists here are a result of what happens when someone takes the gospel into their heart and they live accordingly. When someone sees the life that Jesus had lived and models their life after his. Jesus respected those in authority over him. Most of all, he respected his father. Right, we think of those characteristics of <clears throat> of leadership that Paul mentioned. He worked among the people. 
He admonished the idle. He encouraged the faint-hearted. He helped the weak. And Jesus, really, was the perfect example of patience with them all. Jesus always sought to do the will of God. And who was the main target of Jesus' ministry? Not the healthy, but the sick. Jesus did not repay evil for evil, but always sought to do good. The greatest example of that being on the cross, right? Taking the evil that others had done and dying so that all could have the ultimate good, eternal life in him. Jesus rejoiced always. Jesus prayed without ceasing. Jesus gave thanks in all circumstances. Jesus did not quench the Spirit, but gave the Spirit to us. Jesus tested all prophecies, ultimately fulfilling all of them. And Jesus abstained from every form of evil so that he could ultimately defeat it. You see, these aren't just instructions from Paul. This is, this is a person. His name is Jesus. And if we look to the life that he lived and model ours after it, we, too, can have these things. Let me pray for us as we close. God, this morning, what, what seems like simple instructions, what may seem innocent or straightforward, God, we know that there's always a deeper meaning behind what you've communicated to us. And God, it's easy to look at this list of things and simply follow the rules and do the things that you've commanded to us. But God, may we always remember that these things are not only about simply doing the right thing, but more about being the right kind of person. And God, we know that we will always fall short of that standard. We know that Jesus lived up to these things perfectly. And God, though we know that we can't be perfect in these things, may we still strive after them. And may others see this hope that we have in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.